Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Well, hello and welcome back to Brave New Teaching. We have another interview for you guys today. And this one for our uh, English colleagues out there is going to be real juicy. Okay. You've heard Amanda and I talk about rhetorical analysis quite a bit. Um, if you go back to, I can't remember the number, but Amanda will put it in the show notes. Um, our episode about teaching like early American literature. Is that what we called it? Something like that. Something about that. Yes. American voices, America's story. America's story. Oh gosh. We talk a lot about RA, because that is what we both teach as junior level teachers. We do a lot of rhetorical analysis. Amanda is phenomenal at teaching rhetorical. And she taught me how to do rhetorical analysis ah, for students this year. Um, and so her interview today, in fact, you know what? I'm just going to let her introduce it. Okay, so I want to introduce you all to Tim Freitas. And so Tim, you guys might know Tim's name if you also hear his website, which is the Garden of English. So Tim has been teaching for a long time, about the same time as Marie and I, um, but his specialty has been in AP Lang and AP Lit. So before you guys turn off this episode, because you're like, I don't teach that, um, this episode really goes into what can be done to vertically align and kind of take those skills from the top and make sure kids are getting them like in middle school all the way through that level because the AP curriculum and what College Board has put together for these students at the end of their high school career, it is incredible. And, and I'm only two years into my experience in teaching AP, but I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't start sooner because I think teaching AP has taught me so much more about what I could be doing with my other students and kind of guiding them in these really useful, not test prep, but skill prep in real life. Well, and, I, and, and higher education prep, right? Yes. Like it's not all college prep necessarily, but a lot of it is college prep um, because the skills that we're preparing students for in college are what's also going to help them be successful in a career, it, you know, like all these different areas of their life. That's what it's supposed to be, right? That's how it's designed. So hopefully oh, that's how it's absolutely. working Absolutely. Because I mean, I, I've never taught honors or AP in my entire career. And so sometimes I, I, I kind of discount it as like, well, okay, yeah, but that's for like, that's for the AP stuff. That's for da, 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 da. And the more that I have really worked, obviously Amanda and I are good friends. Like you guys know that we talk every day. But when she starts talking about AP, I used to kind of go, oh, well, yeah, that's, but that's for your class. Can we talk about my gen ed class? 
I've learned <laughs> that everything is translatable. Everything oh, is transferable. Everything is good for everybody. So that's, and that's like a, my take on and, differentiating well, what, between yeah. levels. Exactly. So, and, that, and that's what, what Tim's really good at. So Tim doesn't only teach juniors and seniors. He also taught, has taught and teaches freshmen and sophomores. Uh, but what Tim's really good at are, are the scaffolding pieces. And mm-hmm. so if you visit the garden of English.com or you check out his website, I'm sorry, that is the same thing, his YouTube channel, <laughs> um, you'll see him and the way that he's broken down these really difficult tasks into manageable pieces. So one of the things that Tim is really good at is, um, and he'll talk about it in the episode is he can take, uh, synthesis prompts. And then he asks kids to use templates for their claims, for their thesis statements. And so he's written out all these different templates and he argues that templates are one of the most important pieces in that scaffolding puzzle of helping students get from like a three-pronged thesis. I believe this because blank, blank, and blank. Like that's one template. But if we give kids more kinds of templates and PS, this is another way of spiraling in your grammar instruction, because if you can tell the kids the kinds of phrases and the kinds of clauses that they can rearrange to create really engaging claim statements. They're getting like a two for one, three for one deal here. Um, So Tim has a lot of that for free on his website, but he breaks it down more in the episode. Um, He also talks about one of the more things he's more famous for, which is called Mark and Carly. Um, So Mark and Carly was originally Mark and Shirley, but it's a, a fictional scenario he came up with to prove to kids that they knew how to do research. Cause his students said, we don't know how to do this. We've never been taught this. He's like, um, have you ever had a crush on someone? <laughs> They're like, well, I mean, yeah. They're like, well, how much research did you do yeah. to figure out what you needed to know about that kid? And so you're in the age of the internet guys. We all know you stalk each other. Oh, oh my gosh. So yeah. he, he like, so he talks about like the power of creating, not just in relationships, but um, if you're going to ask kids to do a difficult task, creating like a fictional scenario or a fictional prompt that is highly engaging to get kids to interact with those skills before then applying it to the harder task. So when it comes to breaking that down, right, maybe you just stop at the fictional scenario and move on if you're at one level of teaching, right? Right. If you're and then you're able to next, string it together. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. So we go through all that stuff and I would be remiss if I didn't mention, um, we also talk a little bit about Tim is one of the co-authors of an AP English language and composition textbook. It guys, it's a textbook, but I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. It's selling for $27. Like it's an incredible textbook that, I mean, we would pay this for a PD book uh, in general. So I will link it of course in the show notes, but it's worth checking out the passages he has um, even just like the way he sets up his curriculum for the whole year. Even if you don't buy this for all your students, if you buy it for yourself as PD, like what does a year of AP Lang look like? And you teach freshmen, you're going to learn so much about where your kids are going. And even if they don't go on to AP Lang, like it doesn't matter, right? Like this is all about perspective um, and thinking through how could I best prepare my students for what's coming next. So I definitely recommend checking out his book. I have a copy of it too. Um, it's wonderful. And I think you guys are going to love this episode. Don't forget to connect with Tim um, over on his YouTube channel. I actually just uh, did a video with him about Parlay. So of course you can watch that. It would be wonderful because obviously I'm like the cuter one in the two, the duo of us, right? So no, I'm just teasing Tim. Big hugs. <laughs> Tim's the best. Um, so yeah, so there you can come watch our video, um, visit his website, become a Patreon supporter, all that stuff. And you know, you're welcome for your new obsession, which is, uh, Tim Freitas in the garden of English. You're welcome. You're listening to brave new teaching, a podcast for educators challenging the status quo. I'm Amanda and I'm a high school English teacher in Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm also a high school English teacher in Southern California. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. All right, everyone, let's get started today. You met a little bit of, you know, who we've got here in our interview, but I want you guys to actually hear from the man himself. Tim, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, you know, first, I really want to express my gratitude for being 
on on the podcast here with you um, and re- reaching out to that. Uh, but yeah, my name is Tim Freitas, um, and I am an AP English language and AP English liter- literature teacher at Waitonsville Christian School in Massachusetts. Uh, I also teach theology as well. Um, and when I used to work at the public schools, I taught the entire gamut of student, uh, whether it be remedial freshman line, nine English, all the way uh, through AP Lit seniors. Um, and that's, uh, I spent about 10 years doing that um, or 10 years there. And then I think probably about seven or eight of those 10 years, I was teaching all different variants of kids, ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, and then at all different levels. Um, I run a website called thegardenofenglish.com. Um, we also have a YouTube channel called The Garden of English and, and whatnot. And I'm also a co-author on the uh, AMSCO uh, slash Perfection uh, English Language and Composition book. And that's in the advanced placement edition for that, uh, which actually follows um, the nine units that the College Board released in 2019-2020 um, to a T. So we actually built the book around those units. Um, and I had some awesome co-authors there, uh, with the senior author being Brandon Abden, the former uh, head of English for the College Board, uh, and Lauren Peterson as well, who's a good friend of ours, who's just one of the most magnificently awesome people I've ever met in my life. Uh, but yeah, that's, that, that's me in a nutshell. Oh yeah, and in the middle of doing like all the teaching and stuff, I'm also a dad of five. Uh, luckily, I've got a super supportive wife that helps us with all this too. Yeah, so as you can tell, Tim's really got nothing going on. He's just kind <laughs> yeah, of... <right. laughs> <laughs> yeah. just like the rest of us just kind of you know floating around doing nothing <laughs> that's it well you know you know i think about the idea that teachers just have the summers off and i'm like oh, oh yeah, I've, yeah. I've got those summers off for sure i, mean, I don't even, remember my last summer off even if i did have my summers off right with five kids you wouldn't have summers off but oh, um i, I am i'm also a college board con, uh, consultant for ap lang so i do spend most of my summers doing apsis for um you know for uh college board sponsored uh apsis so, well, Tim's a little busy and you guys can't see it right now, but I love the shirt you're wearing today, Tim. Oh, thanks. Tim's shirt says, I don't teach English. I teach students living, breathing, thoughtful humans. I, I think our audience would really appreciate that. Too. I actually got to tell you, right? I, I know that they can't see it, but I've got the Garden of English on the back. Oh, this is the Garden is. of English tea. Oh, uh, can you, do you sell it? Can we put it yeah, in our show I notes? Do. Yeah, I do. I do sell it. Um, and you could actually access that from the gardenofenglish.com as well, where it has the store. You can get it on mugs and things like that. Uh, we Look sell posters that. too. Uh, but I got to tell you, right, um, the reason why I made this shirt is because a couple a couple uh, months ago, my wife was reading my bio and, and on my YouTube channel, and she was like, that first line, Tim, there's something there that I don't think I've, I've heard before. But the first line of my bio that says that I don't teach English, I teach students living, breathing, thoughtful humans, uh, typically comes from whenever, whenever I tell anybody I'm a teacher, the first question I always get is, what do you teach? Yeah. And I have always yep. answered students and people are like no 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 you know what i mean and i well i will respond oh of course i do yeah living breathing humans that are thoughtful and they're like no like what subject do you teach and then i'm like oh oh you should just ask the question question. you know like and and uh, you know sometimes people get legitimately annoyed by that and i'm like i want you to remember that I teach humans, not, not toasters, you know, kids aren't mm-hmm. toasters on an assembly line. Like, like I think that a lot of standards kind of like pretend yeah. like they are, that's not how this works. Um, and so, because that's what I always say, that's what I put in my, in my bio there for, for the YouTube thing. And then my wife was like, we got to turn that into a shirt. We got to, it, you know, it's a great shirt. Uh, thanks. You know, well, I guess what we're going to have to eventually do though, is you know, change out English for math and science and history yeah. and try to try to push that all around because it's true. Oh, yeah. We teach, we teach humans. Yes. Um, and that's, that's something fun that we get to, to interact with, you know? So this actually perfectly leads me into my, my first question. I, I really want to talk to you about your book um, and what you've done with, you know, creating a textbook for AP Lang for living, breathing, thoughtful humans. I mean, this is this to me sounds incredibly intimidating and overwhelming. I mean, how did you manage to do it? What were your goals, um, and what what is the book all about? Yeah. So first of all, right, I it was never even on my radar to even think about being part of producing a textbook. Um, you know, it's been on my radar to like offer supports to teachers, uh, offers uh, plenty of free support to teachers, uh, to teachers, to also run PD. All of these things I've been doing for for a while, but um, uh, probably about a, a little bit more than a year ago. So not not this past December, but the one before December of 2019. Um, 
I wasn't even thinking about writing a textbook, and I got a I got a text from Brandon Abden. Now, Brandon and I had done work together a little bit. Like I knew him because I was on the instructional design team for when the College Board was uh, bringing in the new green binder and whatnot. Um, so I had known him from there, and I mean, I wouldn't have suggested that we were friends or anything like that. We just knew of each other. And he texted me or he sent me an email and he was like, hey, can I call you? I got to talk to you about something. And I said, yeah, okay. Not even knowing what that even means. You know, I'm like, why is Brandon calling me? Right. And when he called, he was like, hey, you want to write a textbook? And I, 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 read, I was like, what? Oh, my gosh. Um, and it, it was daunting to me in my mind. I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, I never even thought about it. And then he told me the timeline that we had. And it was just, he was like, we need this done in, by the end of the school year. Uh, actually we're going to start in January and we're going to write. And I think that the textbook itself is almost 700 pages. Um, and he's like, and we're going to do it by, we're going to have the whole thing ready by May to, to start being edited and, and whatnot. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Um, uh, but of course, you know, being a glutton for punishment, the answer was yes. You know I mean? That's what an English teacher is, right? We just yes. never say no. Yep. And it's like, Hey, can we write more and whatnot? But anyway, um, you know, the publisher that we worked with was awesome. Brandon was incredible. He was a senior author, so he produced way more content in there than I did. There's no doubt about that. Um, and, you know, when we, when we decided to write the book, one of the biggest things that we really wanted to focus on was the idea of accessing pre-existing literacies for kids to show them that the AP course um, does work with skills that they already have foundations in. Um, and we wanted to be able to say, okay, if we access their pre-existing literacies, we can then, uh, you know, and, and the experiences that they have in life, we can then transfer those experiences to some, to things that we would deem more academic that relate to the skills in the course and exam description. So that was the, that was the big mindset going in was when we do this, let's try to make it, um, as, as applicable to life itself and then draw the metaphor from life to the, um, you know, to the academic content. The other thing that we decided too was to try to make this as, as real to kids as possible. So you'll actually, in our first two chapters, the first speech that's the, um, that's the, the anchor piece in the unit is Greta Thunberg. And then the very next chapter, it's Malala Yousafzai. So we really wanted to start with kids having voices mm -hmm. because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell kids, like, you have a voice. I think that so often kids think that they don't have a voice or when it's like, you need to write this. They're like, well, who's going to listen to me? Yeah. And it's like, you know what? There are a lot of people that actually want to listen to you if you're educated um, and it, or if you have different experiences that are going to help educate other people. And so because of that, uh, we were really focusing on those moments. So when we put the whole book together, we have the pre-existing literacies. We have, okay, what are some of the voices that we can get um, kids to, to kind of recognize? That doesn't mean that we stick with, you know, kids' speeches throughout the whole piece. We don't. We, have, we even have some stuff in there that we were like, uh, this might even come off as kind of boring, but kids do have to read boring stuff too. All the time. Um, you know? <laughs> um, and, um, well, I should just say it was just like governmental documents, right? It's not as high interest as most of the stuff that we put in there, we did try to make as high interest as possible. Um, and if the document itself wasn't high interest, we put it in a thematic unit that was high interest. Very cool. Um, and so because of that, we were thinking all about getting kids to kind of get jazzed up about um, the content with academically appropriate material while still also saying we recognize that you're students, that you're humans, and that you need help accessing this. So the book itself was meant to scaffold as well um, to provide content knowledge uh, all the way through. I, I think that's incredible. And I can't wait. I have actually not looked at it yet, but I plan on looking at it very soon. And I'm guessing if you guys know us, Marie and I will definitely be raffling off a couple copies for our, our listeners. So look forward to that, you guys. Um, Tim, you mentioned this term pre-existing literacy. Can you just define that very clearly for our audience and maybe just kind of re, like rephrase what, what you mean by pre-existing literacy? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's so funny because as we're on like, a, you know, this kind of podcast here, I didn't even think about the idea of what we would normally do in our classroom where it's like, let's set on our <laughs> definitions first. No, it's a, that's what I'm here know? for. That's what I'm uh, here right. for. <laughs> So pre-existing literacies is just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of looking at how students interact with language already. What are they already literate in, in terms of communication? And then how do we get what they, where they live and then move that 
to the academic setting. So an example in, a, in the book would be in our first unit, we have a text message conversation um, with between a girl and her mom about going to a party. And we talk about the differences of how she responds to her mother and how she responds to her friend in that text message. So there's a whole little text message dynamic there. Uh, and then that, that text message is actually referenced throughout the book in different ways. So in chapter one, it's about how, how does this person communicate and make choices to reach his or her audience. In chapter two, it's let's look at this again and let's talk about the choices that are actually made to, and then how does that relate to the audience's values? Yes. So, um, you know, one of them is identifying audience and what the audience values. And the next chapter is, all right, let's identify the choices that now meet those values. So things kind of build and scaffold. Um, and that's the nature of pre-existing literacies. You know, kids do this stuff all the time. If you ever really want your kids to understand how to write about rhetorical choices, have them pull out their phone the last time they were trying to convince somebody to do something via text and have them narrate the choices that they made and why they made it. Because they already know. Oh, I put this question here or this right here to make my boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever feel guilty. Yeah. I put this here to showcase how angry I was at my mom or my guardian or my adult or whomever. Um, that's the easiest way to do it because if they can do it in the text messages, well, let's step it up with the next piece of academic literature. Maybe not, maybe not a, a you know, an article from psychology today, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> but you know, let's go to, you know, for me, I like to use Disney songs a lot and like speeches and interactions and Disney videos. And I'll be like, okay, so you did it in your, with your cell phone or whatnot. Why not actually try it out now with this moment in Toy Story 2 when the prospector is trying to get Woody excited to go to Japan as opposed to being afraid of it, you know, something yes. like that. And then just, just working all the way through. Uh, Tim, you bring up a good point, and I'm going to kind of go a little bit off our plan here, but I think as I'm listening to you speak and I'm thinking about everyone who listens to Brave New Teaching, you know, one of the things that we have talked about occasionally on the podcast is the job of an English department to lean into rhetorical analysis yeah. freshman through senior year. Oh, and yeah. I, don't, I don't want you guys to think in this interview that we're only talking about AP Lang. In fact, no. I think what a massive disservice it would be to any school to reserve this kind of instruction only for the sections of AP Lang that exist in the school. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think rhetorical analysis is something that has been in a lot of places, and, and this is just speaking from my experience, you know, compartmentalized down to an ethos, pathos, logos, PowerPoint, and then if you go beyond that, you have to take Lang. And you I know, think what Tim's talking about can be traced all the way down through so many levels. And you know what's interesting about that too is like, although ethos, pathos, and logos are conceptually, you know, foundational, um, I don't even let my kids use that language. I tell them, why are you using Greek on the English test? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and honestly, I don't think that that's where people should actually start with rhetoric. I think people no. should start with the rhetorical situation. Agreed. Um, and also, you know, there's so many avenues to get rhetoric into literature, like in with underclassmen. Um, I think about, let's say I was actually doing something with the prospector in Toy Story 2. Um, you know, the prospector is so manipulative throughout that movie that's characterization right there. Correct. So Absolutely. Totally tie, I can yes. totally tie the rhetorical moment of him convincing Woody to be excited about Japan or even Jesse trying to, you know, convince Woody that, you know, she had it differently than him. So because of that, he should feel kind of, you know, uh, he should feel sympathy towards her situation and realize that this is her big break and he should be self-sacrificial. Like all of those moments are rhetorical in nature. We could find all of these things in, in, our, in what we do. I used to teach Animal Farm to my freshmen, so we would introduce rhetoric with squealer's speeches, you know? Um, and so there are plenty of ways to get rhetoric in, uh, but I think that a lot of times uh, there are teachers that don't have that strong rhetorical background, so it's like, oh my word, how do I, how do I get into this? But that's what the Garden of English is for, right? <laughs> no, but it really is, Tim, and I, and I think that's, when I've gone to your website and I've even just been, even when I started to be new in the Lang community, I was, I, every time I looked at the great big green binder, I thought, um, yeah, no, this should have started freshman year. Right. Um, and I think, it, you know, when we talk a lot in our podcast and, and I talk with my, my friends and colleagues, if our goal as English teachers, as teachers in general, if our goal is to grow thoughtful, informed citizens, yeah. we can't reserve the most important, one of the most important skills for a select 
group of kids who either got there because they forced themselves or by chance, right. you know, Lang is a wonderful, special class. And I, I would never take that away, but I'm telling you right now, like you absolutely should be looking at rhetoric when you're teaching um, of mice and men, when you're teaching Romeo and Juliet, when you're doing all of these things, because our, all of our kids need this. And I think there is a huge lack of professional development, Tim, just like you're saying. I, I think yeah. teachers don't do it because they don't know how or don't feel confident. Right. Um, but Tim's got this really great scenario I, I want you guys to hear about. Um, and, and Tim uses fictional scenarios. So I think like, like the prospector almost, except yeah, yeah. going a whole nother level. I've done, um, I've done Lumiere's speech, Be Our Guest. Uh, oh, yes. That situation, and I've taught rhetorical situation there too. So yeah. much fun. The kids are like, oh. I didn't realize that Lumiere's song was basically like a do or die moment for this story. I'm like, uh, yeah, if she doesn't stick around, it's game over for all of them. You so know, just real quick though, I got to tell you <laughs> that my Disney, my Disney songs with rhetorical analysis, I actually do that in my sophomore. That's, those are actually my, so, that's my sophomore unit assessment for rhetoric. So we actually spend our unit talking about Cesar Chavez, Malala Yousafzai, some commercials, Martin Luther King Jr., the Gettysburg Address, all of these things. And when they get their assessment, their assessment is to actually do a rhetorical analysis on a it. Disney thing, on a Disney song. And a couple of years ago, I had a kid come up to me after the test and he was like, I really, really don't want to tell you this. Um, <laughs> but, and I was like, you don't have to. And he's like, no, I, he's like, I'm going to. He's like, I know that was a test. He was like, but I think, I think it was fun. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I think that's a solid win there yeah. when they're analyzing, you know, how King Louis tries to convince Mowgli to give him the red flower or how Sebastian tries to convince Ariel that, that the surface life is not for them. But, um, yeah, so just, just a little quick push in there. And I actually have all of those kind of Disney song stuff, rhetorical analyses free on the garden of English.com. Awesome. Um, so there, that is there. And like I said, it's for free. It's not like I'm trying to push you know, tons of sales or anything like that. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel though, where if people are wondering about like kind of conceptual and foundational rhetoric, I do have videos about like, Hey, how do we introduce rhetoric part one? How do we introduce rhetoric part two? Amazing. And I've got a bunch of AP stuff as well. So awesome. Awesome. Okay. So tell us about Mark and Carly. Yeah. Okay. So as we think about pre-existing literacies and you know, what kids are doing uh, in about 2011, um, I had a class and the kids were fine and they were super fun kids. One kid's name was Mark Tatro and now he's like a lawyer in Boston and he's amazing and incredible. And, um, he, you know, he was a really good kid, but he was always my fall guy because in classes you always have that one kid who, you know, like even <laughs> if you give him a hard time, like he, yes. does, he, he will just take it with the best attitude and, and he will then give it back to you as well. And you can take it from him because, uh, or her, right. There are plenty of uh, ladies that I've worked with that have been able to do the same thing. But Mark was like this, and so uh, I, the class was great, but when we started getting into synthesis and, and research, um, they insisted that they did not have any research instruction before in their life. And they were like, this is too hard because, um, you know, we, we're just not used to this. We haven't had a teacher that had, you know, research expectations at this level or whatever. And when I, when I, when I thought about it, I was like, what nonsense. These kids research the credibility of sources to create arguments all the time. In fact, that's what drama in high school is. Who do I choose to trust over? <laughs> so true. Who do I choose to trust over somebody else? Uh, and then how do I not even talk to the person that I have a problem with and then create a bigger issue because my claim is actually wrong because I trusted the wrong sources. So what happened was, is that year I created this fictional situation where Mark dated this girl named, um, this girl named um, Shirley Positive, and uh, I created like all this these different dynamics between the kids in my class, and I only picked the kids, of course, with na uh, my kids who I knew wouldn't be insulted, like if I hyperbolized their character or whatnot. Um, and so this wasn't meant to be mean or anything like that, and it wasn't actually. Like we did this whole scene where um, it, originally it was Mark and Shirley, a, a good friend of mine named Katie Storms, revolutionized this thing with Mark and Carly. Uh, and she made it 10 times better. So if you ever check it out, check out the one with Mark and Carly anyway. Um, but what ended up happening was it was, we had to give Mark dating advice. Like how should he go forward? The prompt was how should Mark and Carly go forward from here? Or well, in my case it was Shirley, but how should they go forward from here? Write a letter to Mark telling him what you advise him. And then I gave him a bunch of sources. And like I said, there was a lot of drama involved in the sources. Um, different hearsay and actually almost every source is hearsay. 
And what was interesting is that most of the time when kids were doing this all the way from 2011 until now, they always suggested the kids should break up. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you do have the one group that's like, I think that Mark and Carly should talk to one another because this is a lot of hearsay from all of the sources that are not. Ding, ding, ding. And I'm like, yes. And then it actually becomes a conversation about a really important element of life. Um, when I let the kids have fun, I let them write their letter to Mark. I let them do um, all of this. At the very end of it, I do tell the kids, you guys want to think about what this is going to teach us about life. We could have avoided a lot of the hearsay that you were using as sources if, if we actually just encourage them to talk to one another. And, and in life, that's what you guys should consider doing. If you have a problem with somebody or, or you want to have an argument, talk to that person. There's no reason to be passive aggressive. There's no reason to, you know, this is the problem that we have. We either just shout at people and don't listen or, or we don't talk to people. We use these indirect methods of, of social media to kind of convey our shot at somebody else. And it's like, maybe, maybe there's a little bit more here. Um, so I, I do use that lesson to kind of teach that as well. But the real point of it though, was to get them used to the idea that they already know what it's like to vet sources. They know what it's like to vet sources and create arguments. And once I proved that to them, synthesis became way more, I don't want to say fun because it became way more academic, but um, it became way more real to them. And they also thought that they had the skills. And that's the point of the pre-existing literacy. You already have these skills. We're just trying to make them, we're trying to refine them for academia. Yeah. Um, and, and life um, in a little bit more of a mature state. And, and that, I, that idea of scaffolding really meets kids where they're at. And I think that that's sometimes what we don't do with kids. We're like, if we're teaching AP, it's like, oh my gosh, this is a college level course, so I'm going to run it that way from the get-go. And it's like, well, they're still high school kids. You can have college level content expectations, but still realize they're high school kids, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I- things like that. I think that's so important. I mean, and we think about, I think sometimes scaffolding becomes this extra thing on our to-do list, yeah. right? Or, or it becomes kind of a, a, a skill, like a, a rote skill only kind of thing. So I'm going to give you extra vocabulary practice, or I'm going to give right. you uh, extra time. Uh, and they're not very conceptual. And, and I think yeah. what you're doing, these are conceptual scaffolds and yeah. they're powerful for every student in the classroom. And, and I think now too, like how difficult it's been, at least in my situation, to have any kind of um, conversation around something that could be deemed political. Um, I I love the, I love the idea of creating these fictional scenarios, right? Setting, setting a fictional scenario in the future. And even though the sources in our moment would be considered political, if I could throw, you know, a climate change question at you, but it's set in 2055, right? We might be able to have the identical conversation, but we can exist in this little fictional world. Yeah. More kids, I think, feel empowered to participate because, it kind of takes a little of the stress off of it being real. I think that's so nice. I think that's a really, really cool idea. And you know, another thing that I do with fictional situations, you know, Mark and Carly isn't the only one that I've done um, in my classroom. Um, Particularly when I was at the school that I used to teach at, uh, I had a colleague who he and I did the same thing on the same day because we taught the same courses and he was actually one of my best friends. So we planned well together and it was, it was really quite awesome. But um, we would take our units and we would create, fictional situations that would match with our unit. Um, so let's just say we were dealing with one on like more on morality. Um, I have some fictional examples and these are on the website too for free. Um, and we, like one of our prompts was, okay, you're number one in your class. You've got a class of 300 students. Your best friend is like number, you know, 190 or something like that. And you have, Uh, Your teacher calls you in and accuses you of cheating. He gives you the proof and it's in front of you and it's irrefutable. Like you have the exact same thing. But the problem is, is that you didn't actually cheat. In fact, you never, you never even met with your, with your partner and you need to convince your teacher that you didn't actually cheat, even though the evidence is essentially irrefutable. And so I could do that in a, in a, in a morality type of unit, or if I'm actually talking about, Let's say we are doing studies for building character, right? If the proof is there that it's identical, that student now has to rely on, can you trust me as a human being 
to, to do that, right? And then I have another prompt that goes right with it, which is the same scenario, but it says you did cheat, but you and your teacher talk about it and decide that it's best for you to tell your parents as a learning scenario, but when you did cheat, you don't believe that you were wrong. So you have to go and convince your parents that what you did wasn't even wrong, even though you totally did it. Um, and, I, and I have a bunch of these here, like another one, um, we, I do Fast Food Nation for part of my AP Lane class, so we talk about, okay, you were a manager for, a marketing manager for a McDonald's, you had a salmonella outbreak, or um, uh, sorry, an E. coli outbreak, uh, everything's now fine, but you need to convince people to come back to your restaurants. Oh, uh, we yeah. Have, we, have an, uh, we have another one, this is our favorite one, and the kids go nuts for this one, and it talks about how they're a CEO of a growing company, um, there are 10 people in it but it's really going to make like have a huge boom. One of your employees is kind of really holding you back from having that boom and it's your father. <laughs> and then, and then, right. They, the, the, you have to actually fire your dad. But the thing about your dad is that your dad always says that, um, always says that the, the pride of his life right now is working for his son or daughter. Oh, hold man. on! It gets better. Hold on! Dagger. It gets better. It gets better because the next thing is is that when you fire your father, you need to be very careful about the family dynamic because you you don't want to you don't want to ruin that. But at no point are you allowed to say I'm sorry because you're not. <laughs> so you know when you think about the idea of teaching, let's say you're doing something with the emotional appeal or anything like that, right? My point is, is that if you give kids these fictional scenarios and have them write these arguments out, yep. have them be related to whatever piece they're reading next. Yep. And the kids will go nuts for this and make them like 200 words. You don't have to make this a lot. But the next thing that you can also do is you can take these fictional scenarios and talk to them about the rhetorical situation that's created. So you can always review these things. And then you can actually tell the kids, can we, can we make this argument academic? Yeah. How can I make this art academic? And then when you read the next piece that you want to read with them or watch the next you know, TED Talk you want to watch with them, ask the kids to explain the relationship between what you did with the fiction that you created for them love that. and the content. And now the kids are really seeing how you have planned to get the skills to them. So kids aren't just saying, oh, so my teacher's having me write these easy stories. My teacher's having me just watch a TED right. Talk. And it's like, no, no, no. Let them be reflective about what you were doing in your planning. Yes. And that right there, think about that. They're recognizing the scaffolding that you've put in. Um, and it's super fun. Nobody questions it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden kids are like, did you plan that? And it's like, no, no, I didn't. Of course I did, you know? Um, of course. Well, and I think right. that speaks to, you know, we've talked a little bit in our classroom management episodes that I think that, there, that when there's a, a level of transparency between the teacher's conceptual units or an essential question unit. When kids yeah. know that the pieces of their English or math or whatever subject you're teaching, when they know the pieces connect, they yeah. feel that purpose. They feel that arc and they're more likely to, you know, not behave in a way that you want them to, but they're more likely to, to feel the, the current and flow of your class. Right. And, and when the kids are disruptive or they're, they're, they're acting out, a lot of times it's because they don't know what's coming next. They've lost right. that consistency. And I used to think that predictability and consistency were the same thing. And I used to try to do something new all the time. And that was its own brand of chaos. But yeah, I, love, right. I love your point too. Like it's, it's a way to keep the flow. It's a way to help kids have ethos, you know, your own ethos as a teacher. Right. Um, I, th I think that's really, really critical. You know, one of the things that happens, right, when I do my sophomore units, um, I actually do lit and laying for my sophomores to prepare them for junior and senior year. And I go from short stories to allegorical short stories to Animal Farm, and then in the middle of Animal Farm, you know, which is a short, you know, it's a novella, but it's allegorical. In the middle of Animal Farm, I start talking about rhetoric with Wheeler's yeah. speeches. Then I shift to my rhetoric unit uh, to finish Ooh, up my year. That's smooth. That's smooth. And, and the kids learn, like, they will get a snippet of the next unit every time. So then it's like, okay, where do we find that snippet of the next unit? And I'm like, hey, remember when I introduced this part back then? We're going to use that now. Oh, remember when I introduced this part back then? We're going to use that now. And then I think that the kids kind of see the, you know, I guess it's kind of like looking at a puzzle box. You get to see the picture that you're working towards. 
and then you see all the pieces that seem disparate, but you're like, no, no, I know that they'll fit. And once I prove that to them enough, they, they might actually trust me a little bit, you know? Which is, by the way, also more scaffolding. That's it. Yeah. Right. Like that's, right. That, to me, that's also more scaffolding and it's not an extra worksheet. Right. It's, it's, it's embedded in the way you do things. And I know that's, that's kind of hard when you're a beginning teacher and you're just finding your way, yeah. but there is hope it's coming. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. It's coming. For sure. Yes. I, I completely agree. Uh, so, okay, let's get to this last really cool topic. I mean, this is one of my favorites that I want to look at. And then I do have one last question I want to put you on the spot for. Um, oh, that's fine. But Tim, Tim's got some really cool stuff, guys, on the Garden of English. And we've talked a little bit about it as well. But one of his other scaffolds and supports for students, so not only is it creating these fictional situations um, or even just like the, the, the lineup of the year, um, but Tim's got some really cool work he's done with templates um, and giving kids templates for writing. Now, you might think, oh, okay, brave new teaching, trying new things. Wow. Like let's get real adventurous and put kids into a formula. Um, I, I think that what Tim has breaks all <laughs> notions of what a formula is and <laughs> actually kind of reimagines what a template can do to free students up in their writing. So can you speak to that, Tim, about how, you know, you've, you've used templates to free students actually, rather than constrain them? Yeah, absolutely. Now, first of all, I want to point out that I used to be the teacher that was like, I'll never give my kid, my, I will never give my students templates. Oh my God, me too. Uh, yeah. I was convinced that that was who I was. And then I met this awesome guy named John Williamson and he was talking about the templates that he had. And then David Jolliffe was talking about, uh, they say, I say, and I used that book for a little while in my classroom. The only reason why I stopped using it in my classroom was just because um, a lot of their templates have a lot of first person vacuous pronoun usage in, in my in my perspective. Don't get the wrong idea. I think it's a great book. I'm not saying don't use it. Um, but I noticed that when I let my kids use they say, I say for the beginning half of the year, I would still continue to get the, my view is, in my opinion, um, like, okay. and I couldn't get that out. So I was like, if I write my own templates without those first person vacuous statements, as opposed to purposeful first person statements, then I can get a little bit more of what I want a little easier, okay. I think, you know? Um, <laughs> so um, what ended up happening was in doing so, um, I started making my own templates here and I, I patterned my templates off of what were considered high scoring responses on the AP Lang and the AP Wood exam. I noticed that they all had the same patterns of writing. So I was like, oh my word, if I could put this into a pattern where the kids, if they put in the right information, they'll actually be pushed to providing the right commentary themselves. I don't provide the commentary for them. I just give them the the blanks to fill in to get them to produce the commentary um, and the evidence and whatnot, I was like, this might actually help. Another thing about the templates was this. I used to teach remedial freshman English. And one year I decided that maybe all of those accommodations on IEPs are not burdens to my teaching, but they're actually just good teaching practices. Mm -hmm. And so I started offering all of the IEP accommodations except for extra time to all of my students as freshmen. And then I looked over that list and I was like, I'm going to offer all these accommodations to my juniors as well and see how this works. And my AP scores went through the roof. Like they, wow. they, they, they went up like tons. And, I, and that's when I realized that if it's an accommodation, like it's way easier to input, like input in my classroom anyway, if I give them to every single person, because then I don't have to be like, Oh, did I offer a student that student his or her accommodation? No, I give it to everybody. Yep. And because of that, it's a good teaching practice, you know? Um, I mean, who, do, who wouldn't like a teacher copy of notes? That doesn't mean that I actually provide my own though. I might get the kids, the way that I fulfill that accommodation, I might say, you need to find a buddy at the beginning of the school year who will agree to give you photocopied notes. Um, and that's a contract you're going to get into. And then that's a social contract that they have. That's still fulfilling that accommodation. Once they document that in their notebook or I have that, I can have my list. You know, J you know, Johnny said that he was going to ask Susie for notes by the end of the year. So if he's not asking Susie, I, he, I set that up for, for him to do, right? So anyway, um, with the templates here, what I, what I realized was there was a pattern. So I set up this pattern for kids um, that would get kids to provide the commentary. And you have to understand, on, on test day in particular for AP, with all the high stress that's happening and whatever's going on in their lives as well, if they fall back on the template, they can write a good paper. Yep. But I don't just teach the template in my classroom. Probably around February, I start teaching kids 
hey, what if we move parts of the templates around? Because we just need the parts and we need them to make sense. But what if we start shifting things around? And I tell them, you know, a Chevy has an engine, uh, sorry, has a motor, uh, a steering wheel, some brakes and some wheels. And so does a Tesla. Like we've got the same template for a car here, but one of them clearly outperforms the other. So that's how I teach it to the kids. I'm like, look, at, if you go to the base template, it will work fine. My Chevy will get me from my house to my job. Now, I don't have a Tesla, but pretend I do for a minute, right? <laughs> my Tesla will get me to my house from my job with much better performance and style. You know what I mean? Um, and so I will teach the kids, how do we actually use one of my adverbial clauses in my template and put that first instead of second? How do I uh, change up the transitions that I use here in order to make this work? Uh, how do I use synonyms now so I don't sound overly repetitive? And that has been a real game changer. Um, and if kids fall back to the template, okay, so their piece is minorly mechanical, but their writing is good. Yeah. And then if they learn how to break free from it, but keep the parts, they really start to develop their own voice. So because of that, kids can learn at their own pace. They all have the scaffold of the sentence frame. And then they just push forward. And then it's like, okay, you know what? You could still totally score an A minus with a templated response because it's darn good. Is it going to get an A plus? Probably not. But an A minus ain't bad. And then the kids that can really break free from that, which I will show them how to do, off they go and they can do it too. So we're not trying to teach to the lowest common denominator to keep other kids down. We're trying to kind of get to that base point to help the kids that want to or that can raise up raise and the kids that might struggle to be able to actually have a bit of scaffolding and staging to help get them to that level as well. You know, I, um, I think that's incredible. And I, th I think, yeah. especially when you're looking at it as, as micro as a sentence, a sentence yeah. frame, that's even more liberating. I think, I think when we, when we think about formulas that get kids into trouble, sometimes it's maybe us giving them outlines that are too complicated but when yeah. you look at, at the sentence level and the thesis level specifically, and, and then you, you know, on, on Tim's website, you'll see there's a huge variety of approaches, like you said, mixing and matching the different pieces. That's awesome. I know a, a lot of times we, we give like the three prong thesis and that's the only, if you Google thesis templates on the internet, that's all you're going to see if you're a new teacher. Um, but now that right. you've learned, you can go to the Garden of English instead. And so there's more, more to thesis life than the three prong thesis. And these are not, again, these are not exclusive to your highest performing writers. No. Not and you know what else too, is that like for my AP lit um, responses and my AP lang responses, you know, there is a part that says, Hey, put your lit techniques or your rhetorical techniques in here up to three of them. But even then when I teach it, when I teach it to my kids, I tell them on test day, put your lit techniques in, put your rhetorical techniques in. I'm like, but if we're going to write a process paper, we're not going to put our lit techniques and stuff in there. So I will teach them. You could still use parts of this template to create a thesis for your process paper where we say the author characterizes this part of the conflict to illustrate such and such. So it's like, just take that part out. And now we've got a much more open thesis for a fuller paper. But on test day, I'm like, guys, look at it. If it's stressful and you forget what you're writing about, I'm pretty sure you want to be able to go back to your thesis and be like, oh, yeah, 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 that's what I wanted, you know? And so I'm like, you know, whenever I do anything with a template, I always show kids what the limitations of the templates are. That's awesome. And then say, and we have to know which, we have to evaluate what scenario is the best to apply them in. Um, but, you know, since I've started using them, kids have become much more confident and, you know, I get kids contacting me a lot and they're like, well, my professor says I'm the best writer in the class or my professor says I'm a really strong writer. Although I have to admit just quickly, the best story that I ever got once was a student was like, you know, I'm writing to say thank you because clearly I'm a good writer. My, my professor said, you know, you are really an excellent writer, um, but you're boring. And I was like, yes, that is exactly who I want my student to have. Because now that that student really knows how to write well and knows all of those mechanics, she's got a professor now in college that's like, no, 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 I can revolutionize this girl's voice. Yeah. And never, never in high school did that student think I limited her voice, but she definitely got the skills. And I, I'm, I am okay with sacrificing elements of voice for good writing 
knowing that the voice will come later because the kids, once they know how to write well, will then turn it into their own. And sometimes it does take till college. Okay. Sometimes it doesn't. So I do teach voice, but it's not my, my primary goal. And uh, that's what the templates kind of come into. Well, and I think developmentally too, a lot of kids haven't really found their voice in their lives necessarily. So yeah. it's, I've struggled when I've tried to teach voice because kids will say things like, well, I don't really know how I feel about X, Y, and Z. So I think in the meantime, you know, it's, it's good to give them that, that foundation so that when they get there and when they actually hit that moment where they want their voice to be very clear, it's yeah. not, uh, there's no, no, nothing else in their way. Nothing else right. in their way. They're ready to go. Yeah. Right. That's right. They don't have to think about 8 million things now. They just have to think of how do <laughs> I get my million. voice into this? Yeah. Cause I know how to write. Absolutely. Exactly. exactly. All right, Tim. Well, I think we are just about here at the end, but I have to ask you one question that I guess I did not prepare Tim for this. So give him a break. <laughs> um, so there's been a lot of chatter out in teacher social media. And, and since you're a lit teacher, I kind of want to shift to literature and, and maybe what the, what you know from what AP uh, lit has come out to say, um, but there's a lot of chatter amongst uh, teachers about curriculum and choosing novels for the curriculum and what should be included, what should be kicked out, right? Like we've got a whole camp of marching against To Kill a Mockingbird. We've got uh, Fitzgerald, forget Fitzgerald and get rid of, yeah. uh, you know, Great Gatsby. We've got a lot of people voicing concerns over classics being taught and advocating for their replacement by new voices. And so I have my own feelings about this. And, and I think, well, first of all, I don't think it's that simple. I don't think we can just yeah. start replacing books and just throwing things out. I think there's a lot more in there, but I'm curious, like at your school and even in the, the lit world, what does the conversation look like about kind of revolutionizing the way we choose literature for our departments, our individual courses? I mean, what is that? I, I hope we've given you enough like stall time to get your thoughts together yeah, on this one. I know we're good. We're I know good. it's a big question and, and I think that there's a lot of controversy out there, but I think it's healthy to talk it out. So, I mean, what are your thoughts and experiences on, on lit? So, um, on the whole, right. Um, at the end of the day, I, I think that my job in teaching literary skills, right, is text agnostic, right? So if I'm told that I have to teach kids to evaluate setting, I'm not convinced that I should have to or feel social pressure to teach it with a book that I'm not comfortable teaching, um, you know? And I, that doesn't mean, though, that I shouldn't go out and also read new books to, to, to work with that, you know, to, to involve myself in that conversation. Um, in terms of replacing the classics and, and whatnot, um, I totally see the validity in doing so. Um, but I also see the validity in keeping the classics as well, because one of the things that we have to also teach our, our students is like, you know, these are pieces of literature that were written in different time periods in different historical contexts that, um, that, prompted this particular piece to be written. So although this particular hero or this particular antagonist doesn't fit our mind of what, a, you know, an inclusive hero or antagonist might fit now in the 21st century, good. This wasn't written necessarily for that 21st century. And that doesn't mean that you still can't pull some of those common themes out there. Like I think about Gilgamesh, right? I teach Gilgamesh every year because I talk about how Gilgamesh clearly shows that people have since the beginning of actually recorded human history desired eternal life and a savior like that's what gilgamesh is about here right mm -hmm. wrestling with their mortality now gilgamesh himself as a as a man is heinous right um and so because of that what do, am i like oh my word am i teaching toxic masculinity to my men if we talk about gilgamesh as a hero and you know uh -huh. things like that um not really where i'm going with that i'm looking for the universal side of things you know uh, however, I do I do completely uh, agree with this idea of diversifying voices um, and getting that in, uh, particularly because you know it's it's nice to be in a, in a time where we can actually ap appreciate a diversified voice. You know, yes. um, I also tell people too a lot though, because like, this question has come up before. Okay. For me, like I don't want to diversify the voice just based on. Um, I like to diversify based on idea, not just nationality. And I think sometimes my students think that diversification is just nationality or cultural background, yes. as opposed to 
actually diversifying ideas. And I'm like, look, if I could find two, you know, whom, you know, give me any cultural background authors that have differing opinions, I think the value is using that more than just saying, okay, I have this, you know, I've got this male author, I've got this female author, I've got this person of color, I've got, you know what I mean? Because if they all say the same thing, are we actually diversifying the canon at that point if they're all saying the same message, you know? Right. Well, and then at what point is it tokenism? Right. right. That's, that's another, that's another fault of that. I think that that side too. So you're, I think you're spot on. One of the things that also I, I really appreciate though, in the conversation in the literary world and in, in the world of literature right now though, is keeping the classics and then pairing them with another work um, that kind of showcases something a little bit different. You know, I think about um, Heart of Darkness um, and I think things, things fall apart often comes uh, yeah. comes right alongside of that, Ooh. you know, and, wow. and because of that, like, I'm like, what, a that, like, that's, that's excellent because to me, that's the, that's the, the true value of the diversification. What does Heart of Darkness do for its time period? What are the problems with it potentially now in terms of how we look at things in the 21st century in particular and how they even viewed things back then? And now it's bringing things fall apart and, and, and discuss this, you know, colonialism and, and, and you know, all of that. Um, I love that idea. And, and that, that gives the classics, you know, it's, it's, it's due for what they are. And it also gives the diversified voice for what it is. And it can actually create a conversation. And I think that that's really what it is. Are we pushing a message or are we pushing a conversation? I often tell my students all the time, like, I don't, although I might have my own political um, opinions and, 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 and viewpoints and wor- my own worldview on things, at the end of the day, I want them to be a critical thinker for whatever worldview they adopt. Yep. Right? Yep. And I need to teach them that not having conversations is not the way to become the critical thinker for that. Yeah. You know, putting yourself in the echo chamber is not. Oh, and so totally. that's kind of how I, how I approach that kind of element there. I'm so glad you brought up that idea of pairing, you know, Marie and I have talked about that quite a bit. And I, I think, I think that this conversation to reduce it to text swapping yeah. it, is not doing this conversation justice because what, what, you know, when you bring up heart of darkness and things fall apart, that's a curricular overhaul. And that, that, what that's saying is, what matters to me is how those two texts talk to one another and how we negotiate with the complexities. I mean, I, I like to look at my school year as a giant synthesis essay. You know, yeah. I start the year with a big question about life and present to them a huge variety of voices and challenges to that question throughout the year. And it absolutely should feature a, a wide range of voices, but I don't necessarily know that it's at the exclusion of all classics because I don't know. I think I love talking about Gatsby when we've already read Raisin because yeah. holy crap, Gatsby's, Gatsby is a different person when you look at him next to Walter Lee. So I think, I think we're definitely in a, in a similar game. So I, I hope that we, uh, we can have more conversations about that in the future. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it was a long one, but what a fun conversation. I know I feel inspired and invigorated and ready to go tackle another week of teaching. I hope the rest <laughs> of you do too. Tim, can you remind everyone just one more time where they can find you and grab some of your awesome resources and materials? Yeah, so right now we've got thegardenofenglish.com, um, and we also have the Garden of English YouTube channel, um, and the YouTube channel focuses primarily on AP stuff, but I do have some underclassmen stuff, and we are going to diversify uh, for underclassmen help as well, and actually, I think that this summer we're going to attempt to start doing some middle, school, some middle school stuff as well. I've got some friends who are middle school teachers. I work in a K-12 through district all in one building. Um, and I have a middle school friend who reached out and was like, Hey, can we do some of this for middle school? And I said, yeah, let's try it out. So, uh, we'll try to diversify that, that and scaffold with that as well as, you know, as teachers grow. All right, you guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode, Tim. Appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You have a great one. All right. Thanks, Tim. There you have it, everybody. I want to say a special thank you again to Tim for taking time out of his day to just chit chat with Amanda and like come up with all these amazing ideas. If you guys want to check out his textbook, even if you don't TJP, like Amanda was saying in the intro, Advanced Placement English Language and Composition. It is on Amazon. If you just type in his name, you'll find the correct one. And we'll also have it linked in the show notes. Thank you again, Tim. You guys make sure to reach out and connect with him on Instagram, on YouTube, on his website, and you can thank me later. 
Guys, don't forget to also leave us a review. Um, hopefully we're bringing you stuff that's still keeping you energized and inspired. And, you know, you're kicking on until the end of the school year and going to get all reset. Um, be listening to us in the near future. We may be re-releasing something that you want to take part in this summer. A little something called curriculum rehab uh, coming back. So uh, keep an eye on our emails and thank you so much for being a listener. We love you. And thank you so much for your support. And we will see you next time. Bye. Peace.